This is episode 337 of the AWS podcast, released on October 16th, 2019. Hello, welcome back to the AWS podcast. Alicia here. Great to have you back. This is another episode in our special series about provable security. These are insightful interviews that we hope you find absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us on the Provable Security Podcast, John. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is Dr. John Harrison, someone I've known for, I guess we've known each other for approximately 20 years or so. I think so, yeah. And John's joined us, What you've been in AWS maybe a year or so? Yeah, just about 15 months now. Right. And previously, you were for for many years at Intel, uh, and we're going to talk about your work there. You're also uh, so you're, you're well known for your work at Intel, but you're also very well known for your book called "The Handbook of Practical Logic and Automated Reasoning," which is a 702-page book where you go through from the most fundamental, low-level logic to higher-order logic, and you build. Uh, code in multiple languages that implements all the algorithms that you describe in the book. And a lot of people from our community use and know that book very well. And John's also known for his tool called the Hall Light Theorem Prover, which a lot of people use in the community to express proofs and they convince Hall Light proofs. It's a proof checker. And that's been used in a number of pretty well known proofs. For example, the formalization of the Kepler conjecture. John has over around 100 scientific papers, pretty well cited. And you did your PhD at Cambridge University under Mike Gordon, is that right? That's correct, yeah. It's a pleasure to have you. So the area I'd like to start is to describe the work at Intel and what what, what you've done. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I thought it would be a a fun project uh, to um, try and apply what I'd done to some simple floating point designs. So I basically spoke to someone at Intel who I was meeting periodically at conferences and said, you know, hey, I'd really love to have some kind of somewhat realistic, you know, maybe simplified, but realistic problem to which I could try um, applying my techniques. Um, What would you recommend? And he eventually came back to me and said, well, there's this paper by uh, Peter Tang in, I think it was ACM transactions on uh, mathematical computational, so one, one of these uh, uh, numerics focused journals. If you can, you know, formally prove that algorithm's correct, then come back and talk and maybe we'll be interested. So mm. essentially that's what I did. I spent a few months uh, formally proving that, um, that algorithm correct. And then Intel invited me to come in and give a talk about what I'd done. Um, and at the time I, I thought that, uh, you know, I was, kind of an academic, so I would go to conferences and give talks all the time. So there was nothing out of the ordinary about this one. I, I gave a talk and had pretty good, uh, pretty good attendance um, and a lot of interest, which I found quite you know, encouraging. I actually got more interest there than I'd had from a lot of academic conferences. Um, but then I was basically rather taken aback at the end. So, so my, 
my pitch was, you know, here, I've done all this stuff, so maybe I can, you know, stay at Cambridge on my postdoc and you can share some of your designs with me and I'll work on, on verifying them. And they told me, you know, that's out of the question because our you know, floating point designs are far too sensitive and confidential. Um, but basically, if you want a job, you know, you can start on Monday. Uh, <laughs> so it turned out I'd actually attended a job interview without realizing it. So terribly right. naive of me. But it did at least mean that I wasn't nervous. Uh, right. So, so I kind of stumbled into it that way. And uh, and that's by the way that's where we met. So I was in that talk. Yes. And, and, um, so then then can you say so you 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 joined and you began proving at the mathematical level, or you began proving at the C code level or the microcode level, or like what, what did you what did you do then? So it was considered that the highest priority thing was to first formally prove the things that were actually in hardware because those are the most difficult ones mm -hmm. to fix. And those included some stuff that emulated various x86, uh, some standard mathematical operations like TAN, but also some x86 specials like, you know, the two to the x minus one function in floating point um, and uh, things like that. And so that was my first target. And that was basically um, proving what would become microcode, but it was kind of at such a level of abstraction I mean, whether you regard it as assembler, software, RTL, etc., the conceptual difference is not actually that huge. You know, the, the the mathematically significant things are more or less the same in each case. I mean, you you know, you're pushing some finite precision words through some succession of um, bit operations, and you're hoping that you get the right mathematical result according to the real number interpretation. Um, so. So that's what I did first, uh, doing the transcendental functions. And then after that, it was decided, okay, so having done the hardware, let's now um, reason about the standard software sequences that Intel's recommending to do division and square root. And so that was another kind of very productive period of activity. And then after that, I did various other um, software microcode sequences. I mean, but the common theme was you know, floating point mathematical functions with a particular emphasis on the the more difficult ones, not, you know, not mm -hmm. so much addition and multiplication, more division square root and beyond to the transcendentals. So you were a research scientist joining a product team and doing quite obscure mathematics work in an environment where there were considerable amount of engineering. And I guess one question that comes to mind is, did that mean you did less research or did you make new discoveries that wouldn't have come out if you hadn't been in that environment? I think on the whole, it was a very positive experience. Um, so, so, I mean, working in a product team meant there was certainly more pressure to deliver. However, at the early stages, I was considered, shall we say, a kind of uh, an optional added value rather mm -hmm. than something that would, you know, stop the product being released if I didn't finish. That is... Um, they were very, they were very uh, adamant that it was an important thing to formally verify these functions. But if I had failed, um, the product would still have shipped. So in that mm -hmm. sense, I didn't suffer too much from the acute pressure. But uh, I certainly uh, was under pretty relentless pressure to actually get results, and that was particularly difficult at the beginning because 
with any of these big formal verification projects, there's a lot of kind of plumbing and infrastructure work that goes on mm-hmm. at the beginning, and you're not seeing much payoff. So in particular, I, th- I found the, the work I did on the division and square root particularly productive in that way, because as part of the proving process, um, I kind of discovered ways that the underlying mathematical theory could be generalized in a way that Peter Markstein, the originator, hadn't seen. And that allowed me to actually replace the algorithms, or most of the algorithms he'd proposed by more efficient ones, and oh, improve wow. those. And then we went through a little feedback loop where Peter Markstein even found a further, uh, you know, further improvements now and again. So what, what came out was not just that we verified the existing uh, division and square root sequences, but we more or less threw away most of them, replaced them with better ones and verified those. Oh, um, wow. And that's something I think wouldn't have happened if I hadn't yeah. been, you know, really under the gun to deliver results on particular uh, things. Wow. Um, and uh, so can you say, so you've joined Amazon, and so can you say what you're doing, what you're working on Amazon, and is that connected to what you've done in the past? Or? Uh, yeah, so so the, the main thing I'm working on at the moment is uh, trying to um, basically develop a small formally verified big num package uh, and actually prove the machine code correct uh, with particular applications in mind to cryptography, although big nums, I think, have potential interest in a lot of other domains. Um, yeah, you could see this as a fine example of regressive evolution, like at Intel I was doing real numbers and now I'm doing integers. But right. <laughs> uh, to me, it's very exciting because throughout my time at Intel, I kind of was interested in really verifying machine code um, of a more interesting kind. I mean, not just straight line code, but but mm-hmm. stuff with some interesting control features and actually reasoning about that. And also, um, so, so, so this is my project at the moment. So I've developed a little um, library of big nums, which uh, I've been formally uh, proving correct based on a model of the machine code. So I actually have two different versions, one for x86 and one for 64-bit ARM. And so I've developed models of subsets of uh, those instruction set architectures. And I'm essentially proving that the actual machine code implementing these big nums is gives the mathematically right answers according to that uh, ISA specification. Uh, so in the at the moment, one thing that's missing from the formalization is that I don't actually formalize the uh, numerics of the machine code encoding, but that's something I plan to get to pretty soon. And so when that's done, you'd actually get the stage like, you know, here's, you know, a bunch of bytes and you can actually prove that if you execute those bytes, you'll get, you know, well-defined results. Like maybe you'll do the, the core operation in an RSA encrypt or decrypt, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And the great thing about that is that there's a there's very little um, there's very little room for doubt about such a result, right? Because you you know the only air gap is basically taking a, a sequence of bytes and sucking them into your theorem prover. You're not right. assuming your compiler is correct. You're not assuming a bunch of other uh, environmental yeah. stuff. You are, of course, assuming uh, that your model of the instruction set architecture is is faithful and as anyone who's worked at a, a CPU design company will know that's <laughs> non-trivial but it's still a mm-hmm. relatively small trusted base compared with mm-hmm. uh, a lot of existing code mm-hmm. 
Hey, John, one, one question I had is, so like, so I, I can see the Bignum library connecting to crypto. What does, what does that mean in terms of like AWS customers? So is that TLS? Is that, what, what, how, does, how does that connect up? And, and are there other, like what, what, what are the commercial applications for AWS customers beyond crypto? Uh-huh. Um, so, so, so a lot of the, the crypto algorithms are using um, big number arithmetic in a pretty essential way. I mean, the, the earliest and most famous example is, is RSA, but there are also more recent kind of elliptic curve-based uh, approaches. And we're also now getting a bunch of exciting new cryptographic algorithms that are being proposed and implemented um, in the sort of general area of being, so to speak, uh, you know, quantum safe. So if, if um, mm. in the foreseeable future, quantum computers with certain levels of power are developed, um, then certain traditional cryptographic schemes may become more breakable. So there are a whole, there's a whole kind of little industry of people inventing uh, newer sort of quantum safe crypto. And very often these also have some kind of, big number arithmetic at their at their heart you know computations in finite fields and uh, things like that and in, in terms of um, getting a good implementation uh, we would really like to be able to rely first on the fact that obviously you're actually getting the right result mathematically but also that there are not any kind of timing side channels or other side channels that can leak information so this is a a common problem in crypto that for example uh you know, the say a modular exponentiation operation can take different times or have different patterns of cash accesses or something like this, depending on what the the data being computed on is. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're trying to develop code that's both functionally correct and as free as we can make it from from side channels of that form. So I think the, there are a whole bunch of of interesting applications of big nums both in the existing crypto the new quantum safe crypto that's coming down the pipe um, and also, you know, in other areas too, um, I, I guess big nums may be used in all sorts of places such as uh, in avionics, uh, other even safety critical areas. Um, yeah, I think, think there are a lot of potential interesting applications. So John, I wanted to ask you about your book. So this is, for me, this book really changed my life. I, a lot of times when I'm trying to understand how logic works, how algorithms work, I find your book tells tells me how it works because it is you've provided code to implement many of these algorithms. So can you tell me a bit about how the book came about? How long did it take to write the book? Like why 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 does this book exist? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um and I, I, I should also um, return the favor by saying your your early enthusiasm for the book, because I know I sent you some drafts, um, mm -hmm. was actually very, um, very valuable to me because uh, the answer to how long it took is certainly a long time. I mean, it was uh, probably about seven years from beginning to end. I mean, of course, I wasn't mm -hmm. working on it full time. It was kind of a partially a hobby activity I was doing in the background or in the evening. So when I had a bit of spare time, um, but it was, it, it did turn out to be a tremendous amount of work. Um, and of course with any big project like that, you get very embedded in it. And after a while, it seems to almost be overwhelming you. 
and you wonder, you know, have I bitten off more than I can chew? Should I just mm -hmm. uh, give up? Is this crazy? And so having some enthusiastic interest from you at a, a pivotal moment was actually uh, really <laughs> valuable in getting me um, in getting me motivated to actually get to the point of publication. Um, so why it came about is I, I partially uh, sometimes when I just want to learn more about a subject, I find it productive to kind of try to write down a kind of textbook style description or you know paper mm. or lecture note style description partly just as a way of understanding things more deeply myself so it kind of started like that you know i did a phd in automated reasoning but automated reasoning is a big field and i was conscious that there were many exciting you know automated procedures that i didn't really know much about besides a few buzzwords mm. and there's enough intellectual depth to some of them that unless you really devote quite a lot of effort to it, um, you, you're only going to get a fairly shallow and superficial understanding. So I, I kind of started it partly as a kind of self-education exercise. And so the finished product is something that I think, I, I think you often hear this, it's almost a cliche, right? You know, I'm writing the book I wish I could have read when I was a beginning mm -hmm. PhD student. And if you, if you, if you want to actually be able to teach something, you need a somewhat deeper level of understanding. And I would say if you want to actually be able to implement something as a theorem proving algorithm, you need to go kind of deeper still. So it, mm -hmm. it kind of motivates you to get um, into the details that you would overlook. Mm. And um, so a question I've asked, uh, for example, Moshe in the interview I did with him, and I'm wondering what your answer is going to be, because you've now you've implemented uh, these tools. So, so one of the things that we're using a lot in automated reasoning group is something called SAT, propositional SAT. There's all these SAT solvers uh, and SMT solvers, which which are based on them, and they're in incredibly powerful. Like they take, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of variables or problems and and are able to solve them uh, seemingly instantaneously. And and so you've implemented uh, sort of academic versions of those procedures do, do you have thoughts on on why those techniques are so successful I, I think it's a very good example of the value of doing stuff hands-on I mean the thing about all these kind of I mean let's take sat as the most basic example just you know the boolean satisfiability problem um, I mean it's its initial role in computer science was kind of as the beginning of NP completeness, where the sort of the moral story is, you know, here are all these other problems that we can reduce to SAT. Um, and as far as we know, none of these have an easy solution. Therefore, probably SAT doesn't have an easy solution either. Um, and if you just look naively at the kind of complexity of, of the algorithms we know, you know, regardless of implementation, if you just kind of do a back of envelope calculation, you could very you could very easily just be totally discouraged like it's just a complete waste of time right i mean when when the when the best algorithms we know are exponential um the idea of trying something with 30 variables is just risible let alone thousands of variables and yet um it turns out that in you know practical problems there is enough structure or maybe the problems have some kind of particular intellectual simplicity and the algorithms um, improved that that back of envelope calculation turns out not really to be very relevant if you simply just 
dive in and try the impossible um, and just little by little refine your techniques, um, you can do a lot better than you, you would first think. It, it's very encouraging in that respect. So on that note, so you've, you've, you've joined a company that operates a pretty sizable uh, cloud and uh, you automate reasoning. So do you have thoughts on, on how you can use the cloud to automate reasoning in a much deeper, much more powerful way? Are you going to dive in and do that? And what does that look like? Uh, yeah, so this is something I, I'm I'm very excited about. So the 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 most obvious and straightforward thing is that you can just use these cloud computing resources just as kind of big parallel processes. So, for instance, a lot of these, you know, as we know, a lot of automated procedures have a bunch of parameters that you can tweak, and it's sometimes unpredictable which ones will be better. So, you know, if you have a cloud. Why don't you just try, you know, a thousand different parameter combinations in parallel and, and see which one works, etc. So that's certainly valuable, but also maybe not as intellectually exciting. Um, and it's just kind of the an extreme case of existing kind of parallelism. Uh, so what to me is maybe more exciting is if we can put that computing power to some more interesting uses, and in particular, whether if we can harness machine learning type techniques. So mm. one one thing that anyone who tries using an interactive theorem prover like my own HOL Lite or like, you know, Cork, Isabel, ACL2, PBS, whatever, uh, although they can do a few things very well and impressively, fundamentally, it's a sort of painful process to turn the intuitive outline of an argument into something that these systems will accept. Um, but we have a, a huge amount of data in, certainly in pure mathematics, applied mathematics, but also in you know computer science algorithms out there about sort of human level proofs. So you know, can we put our computing power to use in trying to bridge the gap between these intuitive human level proofs and the kind of things that our theorem provers will accept? So if you you know, you know, if you're indulge my fantasy you can imagine that you'll just pick pick some classic you know math paper off the web um, you'll process it um, and it kind of like a, a sausage machine so to speak you know you'll feed in a math paper at one end and you'll get a, um, a formalized proof out of the other end now I, I think using machine learning techniques there may be um, there may be ways of using the huge amount of data that we have to make some interesting starts on that kind of thing. And that's something I'm, I'm personally very excited about. I would love to um, have some way of easing the burden of converting sort of conceptually clear human arguments into mm -hmm. uh, versions that the machine can accept. And I think that would be a huge productivity win both for um, for formally verifying computing systems, but also just for pure mathematicians wanting to check the correctness of their results. So what's your opinion is when you, when there's a paper that's been written by someone, they've done a mathematical proof, what's the like key insight or what are they like, the, like a, a proof has, there's a lot of bits where there's like a lot, a lot of details being checked and you make sure all the things add up, but where, where are the key steps where, mm -hmm. um, so where you sort of 
you where the human introduces insight that you would then the, the, the machine learning would synthesize. So, um, so that, so the answer is, I think that there are a few kind of key processes in a proof where there's some real, uh, or where there's presently considered to be real creativity. Um, and if you look at some theoretical results in logic, um, there are results that kind of go by the name of sort of things like uh, the subformula property, which is kind of more or less that if you look for proofs in some particularly stereotypical format, um, then the logical formulas that you need to consider are only kind of subformulas in some sense of those in the original problem. So in some sense, it's a kind of limitation on creativity. But for the underlying mathematical terms, uh, typically you don't have any good um, way of, uh, of sort of constraining the search space, right? And so a lot of creativity comes there. So basically one classic example of this is you have a lemma that says, you know, for all somethings, something is true. Um, how do you choose the something in the application of that lemma, right? So, so instantiating mm -hmm. or specializing your variables in logical parlance, like choosing the instance. Um, or also very often proofs have a case split. So, you know, let's, let's subdivide according to whether M is uh, less than N or not. And, you know, why do you choose M and N or which particular terms do you choose there? So there are certain kind of creative steps like this that are kind of tend to be bottlenecks on most of the existing automated reasoning approaches just because there's nothing like the subformula property that a priori constrains your search space. And so um, the potential search space is huge. And so I think there's a lot of potential for being able to use machine learning type techniques to look for things like that. I guess another good example, of course, like the classic is is looking for inductive invariance. So very often, when you're trying to prove something inductively, you realize, you know, even in pure mathematics, it's a known phenomenon that if you want to prove something, sometimes the easiest way to prove it by induction is to actually prove an apparently stronger thing. Because when you're proving it by induction, your induction hypothesis also becomes stronger and you get a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. Um, and looking for cases where you generalize the property to something slightly stronger to give a slightly easier proof by induction. That's another classic kind of creative stuff. Mm. Yeah. How many proofs, I mean, how many proofs are there? I mean, if you, I mean, how many, I mean, maybe, <laughs> that, that, maybe in tech, like how many, how many, how many proofs can you find? That, that's a good, that, that's a good question. So I had, I had an intern join me um, just a couple of months ago and I set him the project of looking at the data in this um, so-called archive collection. I don't know what the proof pronunciation is, this ARXIV uh, preprint archive. So they actually have um, of the order of 1.5 million papers. They're not all mathematics. They're kind of physics, mathematical physics, mathematics, but a good, good portion of them are, are mathematical. Um, and the nice thing about archive is that as well as just having like a PDF or whatever rendered form of the paper, authors are supposed to submit a, um, like the, the source code. So very often they're written in LaTeX or some such document preparation system. And that's at least potentially much more amenable to 
further processing than just mm. you know, the images and so on. So that may be a ready-made source of, you know, let's say of the order of a million papers, each of which may contain 10 proofs, perhaps. I don't know what the, what the average would be for a mathematical paper. Depends what you, what you consider a really interesting theorem or just an aside. But um, so I think, you know, just using publicly available... It, it, for you, actually, it doesn't matter if it's an aside or an important... Yeah, maybe the uninteresting ones yeah. might actually be the best to start with because those are the ones the machine may already, you know, have a chance of solving. But, but, but you know, that gives you a rough order of magnitude that maybe out there in the public domain now with just a bit more processing, we have maybe 10 million proofs that we could potentially do things with. Um, and, you know, that's the sort of data that is huge. My, uh, my, my intern, Sean Wang, kind of discovered that, you know, with that, with that volume of data, um, it can be very hard just kind of systematizing it and getting it into the right form because you have to programmatically make the right decision at each stage. Um, but I think that that's really, really exciting. And that's just one source. You know, what if you look at, you know, Wikipedia? What if you could actually use somehow the, you know, use some kind of optical character recognition on mm -hmm. all the mathematical mm -hmm. textbooks that are, well, maybe it will be easier for legal reasons to start with the ones that are out of copyright, but that's already a great deal of, you know, good mathematics. Um, what about yeah. like lecture notes available on the web, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, I think there could be, you know, tens of millions of proofs reasonably accessible in the public domain. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, so then on that topic, so um, one of these proofs that, that have been proved in Hall uh, light and by, by a fairly sizable team of folks is the Kepler conjecture. Uh, yeah. And you were you were you you were on that paper, and so could you tell us what about the Kepler conjecture and about the Kepler conjecture proof, and and maybe yeah. maybe in in light of this discussion, like how many lemmas, how many uh, case splits, et cetera, what's the, what's the the data on that proof? Uh, yeah, um, I don't necessarily have all the numbers at my fingertips, but I'd be very happy at least to share um, what I know about that proof. Um, yeah, so this was the Kepler conjecture was, as the name suggests, uh, made by uh, the famous Kepler something like four hundred years ago, and this is a case where a picture says a thousand words, but it, but basically it is saying that if you have like ordinary balls in three dimensional space, like cannonballs or equally sized oranges on a, a grocer's shelf. Um, there's a certain kind of intuitively fairly obvious way of stacking them. In a kind of regular lattice structure, the way you know people piled cannonballs on the deck of a ship, and and sometimes greengrocers in will pile piles of oranges or apples. So this was a a, a conjecture by Kepler four hundred years ago, but it was only proved much later by a mathematician uh, Thomas Hales, working with a student uh, Sam Ferguson um, at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and Tom Hales is proof was kind of uh, problematical for the mathematical community for a few reasons. So first, the sheer amount of regular mathematics involved was enormous. And, you know, in common with some other recent proofs like the four color theorem and so on, there was also a lot of computation involved. So he actually had computer programs that would check properties of particular configurations reduce stuff to nonlinear and linear programming and solve linear and nonlinear programming problems. And then 
there would be kind of some assumptions in the regular math proof that that part was correct or had some property and eventually you get the overall result. So it was a huge and pretty indigestible proof. Um, and so when Tom Hale submitted his paper to a journal in the usual way, um, he kind of broke the journal's reviewing system because they just couldn't <laughs> handle a proof of this size, complexity, and kind of heterogeneous nature with all this computation. You know, they, re they really tried hard. They even basically started a seminar series for a bunch of very good mathematicians in this area whose only goal was basically to check this proof. Um, and even they kind of gave up. So, so Tom Hales, in a very impressive piece of kind of thinking big that Amazon value thought it, it was. A so great what's, what's the size of the proof? How many, how many limits or how many uh, lines or? Uh, something like 600,000 lines of formalization for the regular um, mathematical part of the proof. But there are also um, many thousands, like um, tens to hundreds of thousands of computational tasks. There are essentially three big computational tasks, one of which is doing a kind of graph enumeration procedure to kind of filter down the potential counterexamples to some particular ones. And then there's some nonlinear programming, and then there's some further linear programming, like huge numbers of them, ten, tens of thousands, I think. Um, so it, it's an enormous project. And uh, as I say, at the beginning, I was quite skeptical. I, I was convinced yeah. he would just give up. But uh, but I mean, with a fantastic amount of, of grit and determination and some very brilliant collaborators who managed to find ways of turning these, um, these computations into proofs, like in particular, there's a guy, Alexei Sologiev, who, who found a way of formally proving linear programming problems correct that was remarkably fast, you know, to the point where the rate determining step was just kind of sucking the characters into the uh, theorem prover in the first place, not doing the actual proof. Uh -huh. Huh. Um, and then, do you, so do you see links between what you're going to try and do and this, this proof? Do you think um, like a future... Kepler conjecture, we could, like, for, for example, like Goldbach's conjecture, could we, could we prove that with the system that we're talking about here in this interview? I, I think it's, it's not too much of a fantasy to imagine things like that. So as I say with SAT, that's an example where if you just sort of sat around with and indulged in armchair speculation, you would say, oh, it's, you know, a waste of time trying it. Um, but similarly, I think we could find that once you start some experiments using machine learning techniques to process this huge amount of data, you'll get surprisingly good results. I mean, this is, uh, you know, machine learning is very fashionable at the moment, uh, even in the, the public sphere, precisely because um, it often seems to give surprisingly good results in a bunch of interesting situations. And, are, and would there be commercial, like, could, I mean, you're doing proofs on, on crypto, um, algorithms with their perhaps that would allow you to automate more of that of that work and you'd get they'd yeah. be able to scale yourself um, in that yeah way. absolutely I mean um, yeah. I mean first of all there just is a lot of pure mathematics underlying cryptography that is difficult to formalize mm -hmm. and it will be time-consuming to do by hand but also I mean more sort of computer science focused things like crypto protocols themselves and other algorithms. I mean, very often they have descriptions that are in some sense mathematical, 
um, you know, a, a protocol may be described uh, in some abstract form as a kind of state transition system or something. And so at some level, we're still talking about mathematical proof, even though it's not sort of classical, pure mathematics. So, so I think this could be tremendously valuable, maybe most obviously in just providing mathematical infrastructure in terms of classical mathematics, but also in, you know, maybe tackling the actual verification tasks too. You know, taking a, a, mm -hmm. a crypto protocol as described by some crypto expert and turning it into something that the machine can check. So, John, I uh, really appreciate you coming on. And it's, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. I learn a lot. So thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. It's been, been great. Thank you for listening to my uh, ramblings so patiently.